1: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's the Champions League final preview. Two teams are in it, they're both good, but only one of them can lift the trophy. That's how it all works. Is it time once and for all to write off Real Madrid's aging midfield? What happens to Liverpool if there's no Thiago or no Fabinho? And does Liverpool's season rest on this game. Win and it's a great season. Lose and it is abject failure. Jose Mourinho is good again. He guides Roma to their first European trophy, the inaugural Conference League, in classic Jose style. Score, sit back, soak it up, make it not about you, but completely about you at the same time. Just what does brackets insert name of player at your club have to do to get into Gareth Southgate's England squad? This time see James Madison and Eric Dyer. Has he given up on quelling the right back epidemic by just picking them all? The Chelsea takeover is completed. What does that mean? Now even BBC Ticker thinks Manchester United are rubbish as Eric Ten Hag arrives. There's some playoff games to look forward to. Your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hi, Max. Nederman hello. Morning, sir. Hello, salon Andy Hickman from Football Beyond Borders. Been a while. How are you, salon
0: I'm good, Max. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Uh, Simon writes, how excited are the Podsters for Saturday night, excitement about football is good, isn't it, Barry?
2: Um, well, I suppose that entirely depends on whether you're in a state of well-being that won't be adversely affected by excitement. You know, if you're uh, of a very nervous disposition, excitement might not be healthy for you. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the game. I have to say, yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, you're a, a Liverpool fan. Um, how are you? How are you, How are the nerves?
0: To be honest, they are bigger than I'd expected, I think. I think I was at Anfield on Sunday and that was probably the most sick I've ever felt watching football in the second half for about 25 minutes when it was one all, And I felt this, it was almost for the first time this season, I felt this, we might not do this. And... obviously I'd gone into that game thinking we're not going to win the league. But now that feeling is my overriding feeling going into Saturday. And now I've had a taste of it. I'm kind of, I don't know. I feel for the first time, not that optimistic. I I think Sunday was, they looked a little bit tired. I'm hoping there's a lot of rest this week, a lot of recovery, a lot of good vibes, which it seems that way. I saw some lovely photos of Virgil and, and Jürgen laughing on the training ground together. But yeah, I do feel nervous. This Real Madrid team are... the the most difficult team we could play against I think on on Saturday night but it's the occasion isn't it so let's hope hope that stands for something in football.
1: Were you were you part of the kind of the the people who heard the fake news at Anfield that that Villa had equalized?
0: I absolutely was it was.
1: Oh brilliant how was that?
0: I've never been trolled so hard in my life I was there and it was like I think what's amazing about the last day of the season is like when a goal is scored, obviously everyone goes mad together. But when you hear bits of news, it's like popcorn all around the stadium. So you suddenly start seeing these little pockets of people celebrating. I'm there turning around and there was, this, there was a boy next to me who was about uh, 10 years old who seemed to be getting the only mobile data in the stadium and was like had the only reliable results. And um, he wasn't saying that it was 3-3. But everyone else was, and then there was rumours that it was three uh, three. But then it was VAR'd off, and yeah, I was I was hugging my dad, saying we're going to win the league. And then suddenly, a ten year old boy was telling me we're not, and I was like, okay, well that's it then. We're not winning the league.
1: It was funny for everyone else, um, but but it must have been pretty sore. Um, Nedum, let, let's let's. I mean, I I'm actually quite interested to hear how you made what you made of the final there the season from a I presume a
3: City's perspective. No, I've got, no, I'm I'm neutral. I don't know what you mean. I'm fairly oh, okay. neutral. Fair no, fair to be enough. fair, I've had to I've had to rethink this because my emotions on that day made me realize that you know I want City to win, but I think I'm fair. So I'm not neutral, I'm okay. fair. So does that can that count for something? Yeah. Uh, yeah of course. Of into the world. So when they're one-nil down, you're thinking, okay, this is weird, and they're not really playing well, then it's two-nil and you're thinking, they must have blown this. But the fact is. For lots of City fans as well, you have this sense of doom and gloom, but there's nothing to really justify as such, especially in the Premier League for the last like 10 years. So you don't turn off, you don't walk out the stadium, you just stay there. And then lo and behold, bang, bang, bang. Like you forget how sometimes, I forgot how quick those goals just came in. It went from being in a place of doom and gloom to a place now where you're thinking, oh, there's too much time left on the clock. Whereas literally five minutes earlier, like there's not enough time left on the clock. So that's how quickly (laughs) things changed. It was a shame that um, someone has to be disappointed like that because this is me being fair now. When you think about how many points City and Liverpool have gotten over these last few years, to be finishing second in the 90-point range for like two out of the last three seasons or whatever it is, like, that's such a shame. But this is, I suppose this is how hard you have to, how good you have to be across a whole season. And, it, and those videos of the Liverpool fans and stuff celebrating, I know a lot of people really, really enjoyed that, but it just goes to show how quickly fake news can spread, doesn't it?
1: I like the idea of... Um... You know, we've scored, too, we've scored too early. We've scored too late. Shit, we've scored too early. Just yeah. like that going. Um, Salon mentioned, you know, Liverpool, you know, that the, hopefully they've rested. Like Liverpool have had a relentless run to mm. this Champions League final. Real Madrid have been able to relax. Is when you are all finely tuned elite athletes, is tiredness, how much is tiredness a thing? And how much will that be a thing going into that
3: game? I think there's an element of tiredness, but it's the Champions League final. You know, like I had a manager used to say, you know, you're not tired, you're not tired, it's mental. And although it seems ridiculous, there is an element to that because for some people it's like the psychology of running forward to score a goal versus running back to try and stop one. One appears a lot easier than the other. And you say, well, is it because your nervous system's kicked in now and it's like, oh, you can't do this? Well, not really. So I think tiredness will affect the game because the quality of it might not be the same as, say, it would have been, say, three, four months ago, but the game is still the game and it'll be played in a manner which should be really, really entertaining and... Best of all, like you react to it if, say, Real Madrid score early and then they try and just slow the game down. Liverpool will be on the front foot, Madrid will look more tired. And then the same kind of goes vice versa. So, yeah, I think tightness, it, it certainly can be a thing. But when you can really narrow in and understand that this is the last game of your season, and in some ways, it is the most important one, like you're not going to be thinking to yourself, I'll tell you what, you know, I wish I would have slept for a couple more hours two weeks ago. It's just a case of get out there, play the game, and just just love it because it's a special occasion. It is, um,
1: Barry, ridiculous, faintly ridiculous that Real Madrid are in this final, isn't it?
2: Insofar as they've looked on their way out of it on three different occasions, yes. But I don't think you could dispute their right to be there. Football matches last as long as they last. And while they've (laughs) cut it fine, to say the least, at times, their doggedness, their determination, their... Ability to always find a way, except on those occasions they don't quite find a way, means they are there, and it means any attempt to predict what's going to happen is is almost entirely pointless. They could get hammered, they may win easily, maybe maybe another comeback from the apparent dead. I I've no idea what's going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind that Liverpool are a better football team than. Real Madrid at the moment, but factor in Karim Benzema's heroics and their their never say die spirit, and yeah, I I just I expect Liverpool to win. I will not be in the least bit surprised if Real Madrid win. Well,
3: so Barry said it, but I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to say the the expectancy thing. But like, I do agree that they are the better side. But what sort of just lingers in the back of my mind is when you look at it and they've won 13 European Cups already, 13. The next in line is seven. So for as good as whatever team is that comes up against them. But the mentality within the football club is that, well, this is this is our trophy. This is what we do. Does that work, even though, you know, Alfredo Di Stefano
1: won, what, five of them? I mean, like he's not a big factor in the weekend's game, but does that just still carry over that history?
3: Yeah, I think it does because it's a significant part of the history. And it's not like it's from 30 years ago because you even look back to the Ronaldo times or whatever, was it three in four years or something like that? Like that's mm-hmm. not, that's that's this generation essentially. So those fans and some of those players in that team, they've, they've experienced that. And not just the finals, the runs to the finals, the nature of the teams you have to beat along the way. And I think the fact that they're in the final without playing at their absolute best kind of shows that there's something extra which goes on within them. And it's not to say that, you know, they're going to win this game purely because they've got a history of winning, winning these games. But it certainly does help. Like when your crowd is, say in the City's second leg semifinal, the crowd's expecting them to come back. That's a, that's a really interesting position to be in when you've seen your team, in the first leg anyway, get outplayed the way that they did. But that's the mentality of the place because essentially it's, it's, it's their tournament, it feels like.
1: So on, we saw Jurgen Klopp hugging Thiago um, at Anfield at the weekend. I don't know if that was because Thiago was saying, I don't think I'm going to be right for the Champions League final or just Jurgen Klopp's a lovely man, just hugs people. But... You know, from somebody who doesn't watch every minute of Liverpool, but just sees a lot of them, Thiago seems to be so vital. And I know I said exactly the same things about Fabinho before the FA Cup final when he wasn't going to be there. Who are you more, you know, who are you desperate to be on that pitch? If you had to have one of Thiago or Fabinho, who would you want?
0: Thiago, definitely. Against this Real Madrid side, against that midfield three, potentially of of Real Madrid, that you want Thiago in there. Because... Tiago unlocks our front three to be able to go forward a lot of the time and whereas Henderson can play that role really well he can also cover Fabinho I think and play a bit deeper if he needs to so for me definitely Tiago, and I think it'll be a huge loss if he's not there but I was thinking about this last night and we have no idea he, he's a maybe he's training today I think
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, we have no idea about the, well I don't know anything about the severity of, of what it is I think it was potentially was it hamstring? I haven't read enough on it, but you can have... Uh,
1: Achilles. It was his Achilles.
0: Achilles. It was Fabinho with hamstrings in it. Um, I think you can... Sunday to Saturday is a long time with the best recovery in the world and the best health teams <laughs> around you in the world. And it, depending on the scale of the knock, like, you can, I don't know... Take a load of paracetamol, have a few injections, and probably get through ninety minutes or seventy minutes of that. That's that's my assumption. That's what I'd do if I was playing for Dulwich Hamlet in uh, the Champions League final on a Saturday night. But I don't think I'll ever get there. Um, so I'm I'm optimistic, hopeful that yeah he'll he'll start. But I think if they put out photos on Twitter today of him happy, smiley in training, I think that's a really good sign.
1: On this subject of. How we define how successful Liverpool seasons has been, Barry. But where do you sit on the it matters what happens on Saturday night? Well,
2: oh, I think it matters hugely. I think if they lose, as ridiculous as it sounds, it'll have been a disastrous season for them. <laughs> it does. You can't really think that. I do. I, I because up until a couple of weeks ago, we all thought, Crikey, the, the quadruples are on. You know, they, they could do this. At, at a certain point last Sunday afternoon, we thought, oh, right, well, th- that's the treble in the bag. And uh, I think if they come out of this season with only the League Cup and FA Cup, that'll be really bad. It'll be a huge disappointment for their fans. And, you know, even if they, they lost the Champions League final on penalties, so, like there's literally just a, a penalty kick in it. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be a crushing disappointment for them. Obviously... It would be winning two Cups in one season is great, but when it's the two less prestigious of the four trophies on offer and you've come so close to the other two and not won them, I'd say the players would be devastated.
0: I think I kind of hate myself, but I do kind of agree with that.
2: Whoa, hold on a second.
3: Go on, Ceylon. Carry on, on. Ceylon.
1: on. On
0: Sunday, there was a sense of deflation and, yeah, a real sense of deflation, which I haven't felt amongst Liverpool fans for a while. And on the train home, I was sat, by, sat around loads of different fans and there was one guy next to me and he just kept being like, oh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, he was rank. He was describing them all as rank. Was his, it, that was his, that was his <laughs> adjective of choice, which I haven't really heard since. I mean, I work in schools with young people and they don't say rank, but I haven't heard that since I was at school. It's called them all rank. Trent Alexander rank, Bobby Firmino gave the ball away, he was rank. And then someone else kind of chipped in and went, Come on, mate, like we've had an incredible season. This is you can't get onto them. We were so close, we were never expected to actually win this. And if we don't do well on it on Sunday, yes, we'll have a wicked party. Yes, Paris will be amazing. Yes, we'll have our trophy parade on Sunday morning back in Liverpool with two cups, and there'll be a feeling that actually the ones we really, really, really wanted aren't on that open deck bus and I think that will feel it's it's less a disappointment in the players because they've done absolutely everything they can it's more a god this is this this football is hard football is hard to do this and keep winning at all these things we can as Nedham said keep keep getting 98 points in a season and still not winning the league and I think that that will be the feeling of what more do we have to do next season and we have to go again we have to go for a whole more however yeah another whole year before we can get close to this feeling again
3: Okay. So obviously Barry's bit's going to get clipped and spread around amongst Liverpool fans and there'll be rage and all that stuff. You know, He knows how this works. But I think the issue when a team comes this close to like essentially a perfect season, it means that when you have that disappointment or that loss, it just hits you that bit harder. You know, those defeats in May that change everything really can break your spirit because you've been along for such a long journey and then didn't quite make it to the finish. But I think if they lose that final, like they'll be devastated because that will be the last that will be the last memory you have of seeing your team play this season. But I don't think it necessarily means that like everything's gone wrong this year because they've been they've been they've been very good. You know, you've got the top scorer in the Premier League, you've got manager of the season, all that stuff. You've had some great memories, some great games, and you've got like exciting talent in Luis Diaz and hope for the future and so on. But it's just this is just the nature of it. Like for these really successful teams, like Real Madrid or Liverpool, one of those teams will be absolutely devastated when Saturday's over. And that's just how it goes, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have a bad season, but in that moment, the season doesn't matter, just that game itself. But in reflection, Liverpool' have been very, very good to play in every like so last year, city played in every game, but one. this year, Liverpool have played in every game that's available to them. like ninety nine point nine percent of players will never understand what that feels like. No, pretty much every fan base, apart from Liverpools at the moment, will not know what that will not know what that feels like. You can aspire to be it, but You know, I give them huge credit because I think they've been incredible this year. It's just a shame that, you know, you can't just share trophies out between teams.
2: I'm curious to know, Ned, what it is you think is controversial about me saying that winning the FA Cup and League Cup is not as good as winning the FA Cup, the League Cup, the Champions League and the Premier League.
3: What happened, Boris, was what you said in the second half of your explanation was perfect but the first bit of it is the bit that will get clipped and the second half will never be seen again oh, okay. right. when you said it was it'd be a disgrace or I would be a mess or something like that you know it was are very you strong. accusing
1: sorry hang on this is more serious are you accusing Football Weekly of clickbait
3: no no here? no no. no. <laughs> <I'm, I> mean, <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be somebody somewhere that'll be listening to it and say aha we've got him we finally got him and then that'll be spread and then that's the podcast done do you know what I think so interesting is it, it, it?
1: it's you know it's it shows how difficult sort of being a football fan is. Because it's so linked to expectations, Sylvan, isn't it? Because it makes me realise that I'm not envious of supporting a big team, right? Because I have when Cambridge season starts, I have no expect. I'm not gonna ever be flat on the floor. Even if they went were relegated, I'd be like, well, fair enough. Sort of happens quite happens occasionally. So so I I I still have the hope sometimes. You know, we went to Newcastle and won in the FA Cup. I still have those moments, but I don't have this kind of it has to be so good for it to be adequate you know for like for, for your mate on the train just listing 11 of the best footballers in england and saying they're all rank just it is but expectations you know that is what football is right you, you this is what you expect and this is what you have to have and and so that dictates how you're going to feel and so it's impossible to have a really successful season and fall just short and not be sad right it would be weird if you weren't sad if real madrid won I suppose it's how you define success and failure.
0: Definitely. I think, first of all, that guy on the on the train did then fall asleep and that was the best thing that could have happened. And it was, a <laughs> ni- it was a nice journey back to Houston. But yeah, you're right. But also my experience, my lifetime of being a Liverpool fan hasn't been expectation. It's only in the last few years. I'm 26. So a lot of my formative years as a teenager supporting this team was and midfield of John Joe Shelby. I had, you know, Jay Spearing, Charlie Adam, and that was the team that I supported every week. Yes, I had the, the eras of Gerrard and Torres and posters on my bedroom wall for them, but watching them each weekend, it was like, oh, yeah, fine, you know, we'll do all right. Oh, my God, we won a cup. Fantastic. So I don't think I'm at the point of expectation of I don't have the 80s to kind of recall and say oh we're back where we are this is where we're always going to be now so I'm still really enjoying it and I think maybe that contradicts what I said earlier but I do feel like when you're in the running for four big trophies and you only win the two ones and also a point I'd like to make is is how are we defining major trophy these days because when does anyone call anything a minor trophy last night was a perfect example of that I would argue that that was a minor trophy but everyone's saying, Jose Mourinho saying it's a major trophy. Anyway, that's aside. What a side.
3: <laughs> oh, prickly. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get, get to that. We'll get to that. I'll bring it
0: back up at that point. But it is a valid question. Who's calling anything a minor trophy? Is the League Cup a minor trophy? We still say that's a major trophy.
2: Well, it's it's the least major of the four major trophies you can win. So major is a scale. I would, I would argue winning the summer transfer window is bigger than the League Cup these days. What? <laughs> Judging by the reactions of some fans,
3: piping hot takes, piping hot.
1: <laughs> question for Barry from Michael: Will Mo Salah finally exact revenge on Sergio Ramos, or will the Spaniard have the last laugh again? Maybe that's the final. We all know where Sergio Ramos is question. Um, okay, then who's who's gonna who's gonna win it?
3: Nedum, I think Liverpool win it, and but I, initially I was thinking they'd win it comfortably, but I don't think it'll be comfortable. But I think they'll hang on, and yeah, I think Liverpool win it. Barry, uh,
2: oh, I don't know. I just don't know.
3: That's
1: fine. You're allowed to. That's you're allowed to predict that. Uh, that's the bit we'll clip up and put out. Salon, <laughs> <laughs> uh, deep down, are you happy to make a prediction? I have
0: to say, Liverpool. I think it will be. I think it'll be relentless in the first five ten minutes. I think there might be some goals in the first five ten minutes, um, and I think it'll be quite high scoring. I don't. No, if it will go to the wire and to, the, to penalties. I think it probably, the amount of these goals these two teams can score, I think it will probably be done in in maybe it will go to um, additional time and then it won't go to penalties. That's what I'm saying.
1: All right. Okay. Uh, we'll find out. We're doing a pod Sunday morning, uh, Champions League final special. Uh, which coincidentally fits with my travel plans, Barry, but that is irrelevant. Um, (laughs) And that'll do for part one. Part two, uh, we'll look back on that minor trophy success for Jose Mourinho with Roma.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Waffles writes. I'm coming to the live Birmingham show. Do I win a prize? Uh, Pavel says, is buying a first row ticket to your show in Leeds the worst decision in my life? There was one ticket in the first row left. Is it a trap? No, it's not. It's not that kind of, you know, nobody. Barry's not going to stand up and go, what do you do for a living? There's none of that. <laughs> There's none of that at these shows. Uh, Leeds. 13th of June, Birmingham the 15th, Manchester the 19th, then Dublin on the 4th and 5th of July, Hackney on the 8th and 9th of July and Glasgow on the 13th of July. Go to myticket.co.uk to secure your seat. So then in Albania, Roma beat Feyenoord uh, 1-0 in the Europa Conference League final. Uh, Richard Jolly's tweet, Jose Mourinho has won European trophies 19 years apart, 2003 and 2022, the second greatest distance between first and last European a manager after Sir Alex Ferguson, 1983 and 2008. And it, it was, Nedim, a sort of classic Jose managerial exercise, this, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it certainly was. It certainly was. It felt very familiar. And I hold my hands up and say I've not been watching them in Serie A every single week. So to know whether this is like the standard for them or whether it's just standard for Jose Mourinho final, I'm not sure. But I don't know if you're the same as me and actually how old are you Max? I'm
1: 43.
3: Okay, so you're not the same as me then at 35. But um what I was going to ask I'm pleased that you one.
1: even considered I might be. I'll have to be, yeah, to yeah, be just honest. For, I was just I was just trying to be polite. I was just trying to
3: be polite. But in my mind when I think of like Roma I think of like Totti and De Rossi and people like this and I think of like huge success on the European level and all yeah. sorts. So then to find out that that's the first European trophy they've they've ever won. Or you wait for trophy they've won. Like that surprised me a little bit. So to see them do it in this state, to see them when they're not really in contention in Syria, they weren't in contention to win a title. Yeah, it was a Jose Mourinho performance, but fair play to them. And it's the and I think sometimes it's the sort of ebb and flow of a game. Like if if you take the lead and you take the lead in a final, do you really press the same way you would have been doing if you were one nil down? So you need to have a slow, strong rear guard. And yeah, you know, I think I could argue like that's how Liverpool beat Spurs a few years ago in the Champions League final. I think they scored the early goal. And then before you know it, we'll see in a different sort of Liverpool, but it was more like a game winning Liverpool. So yeah, I think it's very much a Mourinho style performance from how we see it. And he's just that guy that you just don't want to be one-nil down to, especially on a big occasion, because all those players, they're out there because he knows that they can just spoil whatever occasion you know you want to have for yourself. So yeah, congratulations to them. Congratulations to Jose, the man that keeps winning in in finals apparently. And uh, yeah, you will never get rid of him. No matter if you send him to a different country, Jose will always find his way back to your TV screen.
1: I'm basically quoting Nikki Bandini here rather than my own thoughts, but uh, she made a really good point. She was doing the, the TV with me in Australia and saying, look, you know, we get so obsessed with you know, the GOAT. If it's not the GOAT, it doesn't matter with the absolute peak. And this is sort of going against you saying this is a minor trophy. Like, you look at what Ceylon, what it meant to the Roma players, the Roma fans, as Nedum says, you know, this is such a massive club and this is their first ever European trophy. And like, they filled the Stadio Olimpico in Rome and like, the scenes there were amazing. And so, I think I sort of took the piss out of this tournament when it started because people don't like new things. But like, once you get to that final and you win it and you celebrate, it, it sort of has all the same feelings as the Champions League or the World Cup.
0: Definitely. And I'd like to clarify that my 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 point about major versus minor trophy is not a slight on the competition itself, but it's more uh, at the football dialogue or football narrative. Yeah. We, we call everything major, major, major. Well, what does that actually mean? It doesn't hold much weight if we don't have the opposite of a minor. That's that, you know, maybe we shall reflect on our... On our language choices, more. That's what I'm saying. I think the trophy is a valid, valid trophy. Uh, also, it's a big trophy, isn't it? It, it was a lovely yeah. trophy when he picked it up. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think any final is is feels it, like incredible to win, and what it meant. I think seeing Chris Smalling and Tammy Abraham last night was just beautiful. Just seeing those two celebrating at the end of the game, and what it meant, and Tammy being there with like. All of these Roma fans are saying these are the best fans in the world, partying with them. They're experiences that any player wants to have and any fan wants to share with the players that they support. So, yeah, it's not a slight on the trophy at all. It was an amazing achievement and it means so much to to those Roma fans, definitely.
1: Barry, uh, are you delighted for Jose? Is he he reborn?
2: Uh, I don't think he's reborn, but I, I... I cannot stand the man, but I have to say I had a grudging admiration for him last <laughs> night as he walked around the pitch holding the five fingers up in the air. Um, I thought Roma were a little bit lucky, actually. The first half was pretty diabolical, it has to be said. Roma scored with pretty much the only good chance of the half. Niccolò, Zaniolo, nice finish, you know, chesting down the ball after the defender had lost the flight of the cross. And and side footing home with his uh, the outside of his left boot in a quite tight space that was good, and then f- uh, second half um, fine order really really good hit the woodwork twice. Chris Smalling was diving in blocking shots left right and centre. He he was outstanding as were Roma's three central defenders. Now admittedly, fine Order should have had a man sent off. Their captain, uh, or no, it wasn't their captain. It was Marcus Sinessi. Blatant tug on Tammy Abraham that prevented a clear goal scoring opportunity, so he was very lucky to stay on the field. But I, I thought that the second half was outstanding, and while it is, a, I think Roma sort of personify or embody everything that's right and wrong with this tournament. It was originally, you know, well, as well as making more money for UEFA, it was invented, for want of a better word, to, to give. Teams from lower ranked teams around or leagues around Europe an opportunity to play in Europe. And the fact that Roma lost twice in this tournament to Bodo Glimt from the Arctic Circle shows, yeah, that's good because Bodo Glimt are in this tournament and they're beating Roma. Well, on one occasion, they absolutely battered them. But I don't think it was designed for. So teams like Roma and Feyenoord could end up in the final, you know. Ideally, it would be Shamrock Rovers versus Bodo Glimt or someone like that or some Latvian side. But uh, that's where we are and it meant everything to the Roma players and Feyenoord's players were devastated. So, yeah, it's a big tournament.
1: You mentioned the trophy, Salon. I thought it looked a bit too much like the UEFA Cup. I just thought they'd cut and pasted the UEFA Cup and just made it a bit more shiny or see-through. And the UEFA Cup is a glorious trophy. And I think they should have just started from scratch. You know, they sent someone, they just said, look, could you make us a trophy? And someone Googled European trophies and just came back with UEFA Cup. They could have done better. (laughs) There was a question about, um, I wanted to ask you, Nedum Arnie Slot, the final manager, had said, look, I just expect Roma to play long balls. And it's slightly tangential from a question from Pete, because it's not quite the same, but he says, you often hear of a ma- talk of a manager pinning the words of a rival manager or a pundit on the dressing room wall. But has a manager ever actually pinned words to a dressing room wall as a motivational tactic when you were playing?
3: To be honest, these days, you could say, well, no, I was going to say maybe it's a softer but it's not, it's, it's definitely not that. But you just you're just very aware of everything that you say so you never really offer anything that's going to cause any controversy or, say, bring trouble to you. Like I had one or two players in my career where they would be saying stuff all the time. And then when I speak to the opposition after a game, they'd say, oh, I just really wanted to play well against this guy because he really annoys me. And I'm like, oh, for goodness sake. Of course, I'd have a guy on my team that just wants everybody to just play well against them. But manager-wise, they wouldn't pin something up unless somebody said something outrageous. And if somebody's saying something outrageous, I think they do deserve to be spoken about. You can't just ignore it whether they're disrespecting some element of your tactics, your mentality, like even, say, from uh, Patrice Evra and uh, Berbatov, whoever, saying Man City had no leaders and stuff like that. And then you can't ignore that, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, that's there. and But that just adds, that just adds motivation to them because you all hear it because people ask you about it.
1: So, so how, how does that mean Almiron will try and play against Manchester City off the back of, was it Jack Grealish saying... Bernardo Silva was playing like Almirón, so he had to be taken off. <laughs>
3: of course, <laughs> Listen, funny. Uh, Almirón will remember that, and he'll try his absolute darndest to make a difference in the next game. And who knows? Maybe, maybe he'll make a difference, and he'll run to Jack and say, "Just that, you know. I remember that." Because as a player, like when people hurt your pride, and you know, from the media standpoint, you know, you want the you want the clicks, you want the views, don't you? So it's like, oh, how do you feel about such and such saying that you're this and you're that? You know, oh, that can't be good. <laughs> so, ah, so, oh, it's fine. It's fine, but you never forget. Uh, right, football never stops, so uh, the Nations
1: League is uh, week after next, I think. C says, with James Madison once again left out of the England squad by Southgate, who is the best pundit about who's been iced out by Barry and Max's reign of Football Weekly? Um, Simon says, is Eric Dyer good or not? Seems he was one of those easy scapegoat, unfashionable players a couple of years ago, who's now apparently a glaring omission being overlooked by Southgate. Is it possible that players sometimes play better and sometimes not so well? Um Barry are you uh, has the the announcement of the England squad caused you to go into an apoplectic rage or are you pretty calm about it
2: I have to say Max I greeted it with almost total indifference and apathy <laughs> I could not care less who is in the England squad if I was picking it most of the current crop wouldn't have got near it I'd be just picking non-league players or random pedestrians off the street I'm not surprised by the omission of Madison because I just think Southgate isn't a fan of his. Whether or not he should be in the squad, I I don't know. I think if, as seems very likely, he doesn't uh, make England's World Cup squad, one of the TV networks should 100% snap him up as a pundit because I think he's outstanding or would be outstanding in that role. But uh, yeah, as I say, I could not give two hoots who's in the England squad. The one thing I will say is that after Nicky's tirade of sorts on on, was it Tuesday I did check to see if uh, Tamori had made it and he did so that's that's good
1: yeah and Jared Bowen as well so that is uh, uh, he's had an excellent season Hobbs says would a back five of just our right backs Alexander, Arnold, Walker Justin, (laughs) James and Trippier be better than our actual back five I don't know Salon I imagine you're just not ready I'm I'm as guilty of this I'm not really ready I'll I'll quite enjoy the Nations League I think we've got We've got some quite good games. I think playing Italy and Germany. You're not entirely sure. Should know. I guess that's what people come to this podcast for. But until the season's done, I can't be thinking about this really.
0: Definitely not. I think being a Liverpool fan, being I've in absolutely every game of the season. Like I'm ready for a bit of a rest. And then there's the Women's Euros. I don't need this UEFA Nations League, you know, squeezed in between this the two things that are probably the most important to me, which is the Champions League final and then the Women's Euros. So. I don't know how much I'll be watching. It would be nice to see Jarrod Bowen do well. That's, I think that's one thing that I'll, I'll be watching out for.
1: Uh, Richard made the point, how can £115 be acceptable as a price for an England shirt? I mean, the away kit looks like a Holland shirt, which I, you know, I know they like bright colours because the kids like them, but you know it's a bit Stabilo Marker Pen and a bit Netherlands for me. But still on £115, we know it doesn't cost that much to make one of them.
0: It's absolutely absurd. I think you're trying to get a generation of girls, teenage girls and boys into this sport, into to being fans. Massive part of that is buying the merch, feeling part of it, wearing it, and isolating that many people by saying it's 115 quid. It's also just put such a strain on relationships and families. If you've got like a girl, a daughter who's seven, eight years old and really, really wants something and your parent can't afford to buy that, then that's so... Yeah, damaging and, and just a horrible position to put people in. That why it It just does not need to be that expensive.
1: The match shirt one hundred fourteen ninety five. Stadium shirts are available for seventy four ninety five. I like the idea that you wear a stadium shirt to say I am just a fan. If you wear a match shirt, you're thinking I'll bring my boots. You never know. Is that is that the
3: difference? <laughs> You've made a good point there because in my uh, joints of playing five-a-side again, I sometimes see people wearing that the 115-pound like, the shirt with the 250-pound boots and they've brought the 200-pound ball, but still they can't put all of them together and actually kick a ball towards the goal. So that's actually quite funny in my opinion.
1: How's that, how's that all going, Edom? Yeah, still, I'm, still doing, I'm still doing very well. Still, still, still doing very well, yeah. As Barry said, oh, picked whoa, up. Oh, whoa,
3: whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now, I'm improving, you know, I was just going through a bit of a pre-season, but now I get it. You know, I think I'm one of the elites of amateur football now. So thank you very much for that, Max.
1: It's a pleasure. Uh, That'll do for part two. Uh, Part three will begin uh, with the Chelsea sale. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So the 4.25 billion takeover of Chelsea has been completed after Roman Abramovich agreed to the UK government's terms for the sale. Um, uh, Nadine Doris, the Culture Secretary, uh, said... The UK government issued a license on Tuesday night that permits the sale of Chelsea. A few reports say uh, that sources say that Todd Bowley's consortium have big ambitions, quote, in the transfer market. Uh, Jacob Steinberg writing in the paper, Chelsea's new owners will hand Thomas Tuchel significant funds for new signings. Uh, A new era can officially begin. Uh, Bailly's group's determined to hit the ground running and tends to show Tuchel its ambition to help Chelsea catch Manchester City and Liverpool at the top of the Premier League. Uh, first signing expected to be Jules Koundé from Sevilla. Um, also interested in RB Leipzig's Josco Um So, Barry, what does this mean? It's, it's sort of business as usual, does it, for Chelsea? Uh,
2: well, it's business. I, <laughs> I don't know if it's as usual. <laughs> but considering there was a theoretical possibility they could have more or less gone bust, are out of existence at the end of this week. Fans will be reassured to, to know that the British government has now issued a license so this American-led investment group can buy the club and the government have been given assurances that none of the 2.5 billion... I mean, these are ridiculous amounts of money. 2.5 billion uh, from the sale will go to Roman Abramovich... The new owners led by Todd Bowley, but largely financed by Clear Lake a private American private equity firm have had to give certain assurances a loan of 1.6 billion has been cleared but Roman Abramovich won't get any of those proceeds the new owners will have to invest 1.75 billion in the club and that They'll have to invest in the club's women's team. They'll have to invest in the academy and training facilities. They'll have to commit to rebuilding Stamford Bridge. They're not allowed to load the club with debt, glazers at Manchester United style. Uh, they're not allowed to sell the club within a decade of taking ownership. And all funds will go into what's called an escrow account, which will be frozen and will eventually go to charity and some guy from who used to work for UNICEF will be in charge of drawing up the plans for that the amount of money they're investing it's difficult to know when they will get a return because these boys aren't philanthropic uh, they're not doing this for the goodness of their hearts or for their own amusement like Roman Abramovich did and Chelsea at the moment loses the thick end of eight, nine £900,000 a week so that they are going to have to stop that. They are in this to make money.
1: In pure footballing terms, I guess it's good, Nedum, that if Chelsea, you know, can buy lots of players, etc., that, that they could challenge Liverpool and City. Like you want to have as many teams going for the title as possible.
3: Yeah, if we're just talking about from a footballing standpoint, I don't think. The majority of people in that sort of have an interest in football want to see two sides just being away from everybody else. I think they do want it to see it more competitive, so that more teams are involved and it just drives other teams as well to get better. But I think overall, with this tra- with this um, takeover as well, it's just it's like the job security for all the staff as well. You know, we, we sort of look at it from a footballing standpoint that you know they'll bring in this player because Rüdiger's leaving, that guy's leaving, but like the person who's working at the stadium now can be working at the stadium next year can afford to play this, can afford to play that. And I think we forget sometimes the amount of people involved in a football club aren't just the 11 that are on the field and the people who sort of turn up to look after them as well. So I'm glad about that. And hopefully Chelsea do become more competitive. I think, you know, in the past, well, ultimately, here's the way it goes. The teams that have the most money, you know, they're not necessarily loved universally, but the fact is they're still very, very good sides and they make it competitive. And there's a reason why I say going around Europe, these teams tend to do, like cities and and like, tend to do well in comparison to say other nations where their clubs aren't as well uh, financed as say um, you can find in the Premier League so it's good I hope it becomes more competitive I hope it brings more sort of real elite talent to the Premier League I hope it develops elite talent in their academies and yeah, it's, it's great for the Premier League as a product and, um, and with Barry though as is the case with pretty much all billionaires you know you, there are question marks with stuff but you just hope that you don't find them going down that route when it comes down to football because it's something that you know in its purest form we do still very much enjoy for what it is as opposed to what somebody wants it to be
0: i think as well what's interesting about this takeover is um chelsea confirming a sort of con- confirming their tory status they've literally approached um danny finkelstein to be a non-exec director on the board who obviously is a conservative party men- member and sits in the house of lords so there is one, a lot of, you know, Chelsea bashing that you can continue to do by saying that they're Tories in West London, but also there's a there's a link there into government.
1: Mm. And, you know, if there is some from the government, presumably every meeting will just be sick on the walls, <laughs> fights, boozing until God knows when. No, that's not, that's just, and that is just a meeting, isn't it? Of course. Speaking of the government, uh, exclusive from David Kahn. Uh, this is what he wrote Boris Johnson's government worked for months to encourage the Premier League to approve the controversial Saudi Arabia backed takeover of Newcastle United. Uh, the extensive efforts to facilitate the deal, led by Johnson's Minister for Investment, Lord Jerry Grimstone, were made despite the government and Johnson repeatedly saying publicly that they had no involvement in the takeover talks. Responding to the Guardian's questions about Grimstone's discussions, Downing Street said the Newcastle deal was, quote, a commercial matter for the Premier League and it was entirely for them to assess under its owners' and directors' tests. Nothing to see here, Barry.
2: Well, it's no surprise to, to learn that the government were wholeheartedly in favour of the Saudi takeover because they they need Saudi Arabia, you know, and Saudi Arabian investment. It's just further evidence of Boris Johnson's dishonesty and almost pathological inability to tell the truth about literally anything. <laughs> so you know, and Newcastle fans be rolling their eyes. I'm not actually not having a pop in Newcastle here at all. But um like Boris Johnson, in response to a question in Parliament, said the government was not involved at any point in the takeover talks on the sale of Newcastle. That is not true. <laughs> Making statements that are not true in Parliament used to be a resigning offence. He does it just almost on a daily basis now. <laughs> Playoffs then in the EFL.
1: Huddersfield-Notting Forest, the richest game in the world, Nedham. Who do you want to go up?
3: Well, I'm glad you've asked the question in that exact manner. So um, working in, in media now, like, and I realize the sort of age of some of the people who are involved. And I feel like there's a longing among some of the people around me for, for Forrest to go up because of those days at the city ground and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, so what? You know what I mean? Like, literally, so what? How about Huddersfield? Because I feel like within football, we like to lean into the underdog, and surely that's what Huddersfield are. You know, I, I think Forrest have... I think they've got they've spent the sixth most amount of money in the championship this season, and Huddersfield have spent nothing. So that sounds like a nice underdog story, but because it's against Forest, I say people more leaning towards Forest. And one thing I'll have to say, one of my very good friends plays for Huddersfield, and one of my other very good friends used is to it play Andy for him. Booth? Is it unfortunately is it, is it's, it's it, is not it Andy no, Booth? It's not Andy Booth. Okay. it's not Andy Booth, but. I'm I'm decidedly neutral about it. Like I want them to do well. And if they play well, I hope they win. But I don't I'm not like having this love affair with Forest because for most younger sort of viewers and stuff, listeners, like they don't really know what Forest is about and they don't really care. And in in some ways, I think that's that's pretty fair.
1: I guess maybe it's because Huddersfield were in the Premier League. But why is that a problem? That's the reasonably recently. Why is that a problem? I think People liked Brentford going up because they'd never been there, right? And so mm. Huddersfield were there for a bit. And obviously, it was when they went up, it was great. It was like it was like Patrick Stewart being excited in the crowd, and this is fun, and they're different. And now it's like I've, I've seen Huddersfield in the Premier League, and actually, it wasn't that interesting.
3: Right? But then imagine imagine how you feel then if you were a Huddersfield fan, and that's the argument that's being levered against you oh, and your club. Okay, totally well,
2: different. I I could level a different argument. I was once on a train from Leeds to Manchester. Uh, it stopped at Huddersfield, where a load of Huddersfield fans got on and terrorised everyone in the carriage. So that's why I hope they lose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I've I've had an intense dislike of Huddersfield Town ever since. And Nottingham Forest are just Nottingham Forest. So, yeah, there.
1: Producer Charles says, Barry, you were terrorized
2: hey. by the Huddersfield <laughs> fans. Very
1: good, uh, Mansfield, Port Vale. So I hate, which I hate the to add, it yeah.
2: wasn't me personally yeah. who was terrorised, but it was lots of little old ladies and children just going about their business who mm. were terrorised. <laughs> I, I was quite taken aback by. Just how obnoxious they were at such an early hour.
3: That's 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 football fans for you. In certain moments, like they're not really the shining light of society. I'd say. Are
1: you saying that it's not Huddersfield specific? Yeah, I would saying? say it's not Huddersfield specific. <laughs> although they
3: can they can get after it. I think you just arrive on the wrong train at the wrong time, and before you know, it, you might be in trouble. Yeah.
1: Um, League Two playoff final: Mansfield v Port Vale. Which club uh, has the richest history then, and therefore deserves to go up in the night? It's probably Port Vale, isn't it? But. I'm I'm really struggling to think of a great history for for either team. Many apologies to our uh, Mansfield and Port Vale fans. Um, Salon, you wanted to mention Troy Deeney's documentary. Tell us all about it.
0: Yeah, it came out this week. It premiered on Channel 4 on Monday night. It's called Where's My History? Uh, And it's a documentary looking, um, building on or kind of telling the story of Troy Deeney's campaigning to get a more representative teaching of history in the national curriculum in British education. Well, not British, actually, because in the documentary sets out that in Wales, they have mandated the teaching of black history. Um, But England is, is... Yeah, there is no mandated positive black history on the GCSE curriculum. It's a fantastic documentary because we talk all the time about players using their profiles and their platforms to create societal change. And for me, this is... This is a step forward in the sense that he was obviously a main protagonist in the taking of the knee after George Floyd's murder, and he's now looking at societal issues of racism, structural racism, institutional racism, and he's come up with or he's identified a solution that lots of people are working on on the ground he works really closely with the black curriculum um also a movement called impact of a mission um and he goes and meets with them and and sort of shines a light on their work and then uses his platform and his I guess the power of the blue tick right to to do the lobbying and to write to Nadeem Sahawe, the secretary of education and I think it's yeah it comes across brilliantly I was at the premiere on Monday night and was fortunate enough to chat to him afterwards and um it is personal for him his his own story was that he was um a black boy at school mixed race boy who was excluded from school and he says actually if if i'd have had more things in school and in the curriculum that spoke to me that helped me learn about me and my peers um then i would have been more interested i think and i wouldn't have been messing about and you know all the low level disruption and i think that's something we see all the time at FBB um with young people and we've actually created a uh, very in, in light of what he's doing. But with Ian Wright, we made a Black British history module for our young people and, and wove that into the FPB curriculum. And you see it, right? As soon as you, you work with young people and you give them the opportunity, the tools, the spaces to talk about the things that matter to them, the things that make them, their identities, then you have so much more engagement and a, and a real thirst. All kids are inquisitive. All kids want to learn. They want to find out more about the things. So we need an education system that reflects that.
1: Um, Which should get on. Troy, to, to to talk about it. So just it's probably worth, reminding people or letting people know who are perhaps new listeners what football beyond borders is.
0: Yeah, th- thanks, Max. Appreciate it. Um, we are we're an education charity. Um, we work with young people across London, Greater Manchester, uh, and soon to be uh, the West Midlands, Birmingham, from September. Um, and we work with young people who are really passionate about football but disengaged in their education. Um, and we support them to finish school with the skills and the grades that they need to successfully transition to adulthood. So we work with them from Year Eight all the way up to Year Eleven. So it's four years. And um, we give them, yeah, there's a therapeutic approach. Um, we work with them um, to build their change their attitude to learning, we give them a trusted adult relationship throughout their, their teenage years um, and hopefully by the end of it they get their English and maths GCSEs and can have the skills to be able to build relationships that they'll have in the rest of their lives which are really really important to them.
1: I think it's really fascinating what Troy Dini was saying because I just think of my experience of you know not many people believe I had a degree in anything but a degree in modern history and actually it probably wasn't until A-levels that I even that there was even anything on the syllabus that was kind of remotely not just you know kings and queens you know uh, white history white history you know there was like i I, I started doing sort of british india and learning from both sides in my a levels but but before then
2: as far as i'm aware in in the school curriculum in the uk you don't learn anything about the oppression of the Irish. But in Ireland, the only thing you learn in history is what a shower of bastards the Brits were.
1: (laughs) No, you're right. Actually, honestly, nothing about Ireland, like literally nothing. Certainly when I was growing up, I don't know what it's like now. Um, And yet, look, Barry, we're friends now. So isn't it it a wonderful thing? Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, John says, is John Bruin a trainee at BBC News? Um, The BBC has apologised after a message appeared on the news channel saying Manchester United are rubbish. Uh, The text mistakenly popped up on the news ticker during a tennis update at 9.30 on Tuesday morning. Later in the morning, presenter Anita McVeigh had to apologise to any Manchester United fans who had been offended. Oh, come on. You shouldn't have to apologise. She said the mistake had occurred, someone was learning how to operate the ticket and was just writing random things. Uh, Anyway, look, we'll do a, we don't have time today, but we'll talk properly about Ten Hag arriving and uh, actually, I, I, I don't know what you think, Nedim, about him, him. Didn't he do his press conference on the day of Man City's parade? That, was that a good idea, that timing? or
3: I think it matters to the United fans, because if he wasn't doing that, then maybe they'd have to like listen to people talk about the parade. So it creates a little side story. So maybe it's the perfect timing, and maybe this is the start of Man United coming back. And also in regards to that BBC ticker, if they would have said Manchester United have been rubbish, do you think they'd still have to apologise?
1: Yeah, that's a good... No, you're absolutely right. It was it just got the tenses wrong didn't they mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: it would have been good if ten hag if they'd sort of combined the parade and the presser and ten hag had turned up holding a bottle of beer as drunk as Jack <laughs> English was <laughs> <laughs> all had to do his presser on the bus bo- that there's a um
1: there's a, on the top of the bus i think it was in what was the year where liverpool won the double was 86 and everton came second and everton lost the fa cup final and they'd organised a bus parade for both teams and so like basically the Everton I can't remember who I was interviewing it might have been Kevin Sheedy or Graham Sharp or someone was saying the Liverpool f- players were obviously on the top of the bus having the parade and the Everton f- players just sat on the bottom of their bus getting absolutely shit-faced just didn't go out the yeah. only time they left the bus was to knock <laughs> on someone's house to go and have a wee and that was it and then they'd crawl back into the bus and go what are we doing on this parade which is and the other good parade story is um, Tottenham arranged a parade for the 1987 FA Cup Final, which they obviously lost, and um, they sort of had to do the parade anyway, even though they'd lost the FA Cup. And there were just lots of people with signs set for Gary Mabbott saying, "We don't mind Gary. We forgive you for that." <laughs> <laughs> I
0: I played. I played at um, the Tottenham Stadium last week, and the two coaches. My coach was Ledley King, but the other coach was Gary Mabbott. Oh, oh, what a lovely guy! What a lovely guy! I shook his hand in the lineup, and I, he was the opposing coach. And I went, "We're going to win," and he went, "I don't mind as long as everyone finishes with smiles on their faces."
1: <laughs> oh, what a hero! Oh, should run football, shouldn't he? Um, anyway, that will do for today. Uh, thanks, Nedim. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Salon. Thank you. Cheers, Baz. Thanks, Max. And yeah, we'll be back on Sunday. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens.
3: This is The Guardian.